morning, everyone. It really is a, a privilege to be here. I um, I love being here, not necessarily preaching. <laughs> I love being with the people of God, and we are the people of God, and I, I feel like I'm a product of this community and a product of a God who loves and a God who saves. And I can just, I feel like I look out across the room. I don't see Greek here this morning, but I can probably say something about him because he's not here. That We are so privileged to have leaders like Greg who love and care and nurture us. And I feel like this morning, or whenever you hear me, or I think I can probably speak for everyone else that preaches, you don't just hear from me, you hear from us. You know, when the Holy Spirit came down in Acts, and Peter, he stood up in front of the whole congregation, filled with the power and the life of the Holy Spirit, and he spoke on behalf, not of Peter, but of a people the people of God's position. And so I feel like standing up here, I'm delivering a message that has the apostolic life that's come through the faithfulness of Greg. I feel like it's got wisdom and insight that's come from the maturity of Nick Hughes, who's faithful to walk with young men and to nurture and to mature them. I feel like there's aspects of the faithfulness of Mal from last week talking about the priesthood and bringing this perspective of how faithfulness now affects our eternity. And so to me, I'm, I'm so grateful to be here as a people and I'm grateful to you guys. Um, and I feel like the older I get and the more that I grow up, the more my heart is flooded with absolute gratitude for those who have gone before me and those who I have the privilege of walking with. And I just had the privilege of catching up a couple of weeks ago with one of the men who was really pivotal in my life as a young child. His name is Evan, and he has, I think... It, what, 11 kids, maybe 12 now. <laughs> and when I was 11 or 12 years old, I went along to this little youth group and he preached the gospel. And I, looking back now, I was born again. I went from having no concept of God, even though I went and grew up in Sunday school, to all of a sudden, Jesus became alive. And so if you ever are wondering, can kids be truly saved? Absolutely, you know, there's no age barrier, there's no restriction that if the Spirit of God is speaking and working in the lives of people's hearts, then that I know for me, I just feel like my heart is flooded with gratitude. It says, How, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news! And the faithfulness of one man meant that my life has now taken a different course and a different path. That I've gone from futility 
and living for the things of this world to living for the things of heaven and for eternity. So don't underestimate your significance as part of this family, whether you're preaching from the pulpit or whether you're having a casual conversation with someone in the cafe. All of this is important, and we are all a part of this together. Um, and so I hope, I hope that's encouraging to you. I'm going to talk today about being a set-apart people, a people of God's own possession. And what really sparked this was actually just scrolling through the news on the news website, and I, a particular title like caught my attention. And it says something like, um, the, something like, Pope confirms that women won't be allowed to be priests under his leadership. Oh, interesting. That the Pope is confirming. He says, under his leadership, women are not able to be priests. And I think I just clicked on the article and had a little flick through. And it's no surprise that the Pope will do things like this. But it got me thinking about priests. And it's not a new topic, but it stirred my heart. And it was awesome to hear from Mel last week about the priesthood. Wasn't that an awesome and powerful sermon? And so I'm not going to talk specifically about the priesthood, but the priests are probably one of the greatest examples of a set-apart people in the Bible. So I am going to go there and hopefully expand on some of the things that Mel shared and uh, bring some other things too. Cool? God is so committed to us as his people. And I've just been making my way through the book of Deuteronomy and time and time and time again, you just see the faithfulness of God coming out. And he says, he says things like this. Um, he says, I humbled you and I fed you with manna so that men, or so that you would know that man does not live on bread alone but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so he is so committed to bringing us as his people from living of a life source to finding our identity and our nutrients and our sustenance in the things of this earth. And he's committed to bringing us into an eternal relationship with himself from which everything that we need flows. Um, and so the first example I want to talk about is, like I said, priests. And when I was reading this article about the priests, it, it struck me. He's, uh, this, the, priest, uh, the, the Pope is saying this. He's saying that what you wear, whether you get married, your gender... These are determining factors of whether you're a priest. But yet the Bible talks about a new order of priests, not according to the law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life. So saying 
being a priest has nothing to do with your robes. It has nothing to do with your gender. It has everything to do with the life of God that's within you and being joined in an intimate and close relationship with him. And so the example that we see on the news of priests is quite horrific. There's an epidemic of child abuse and all of these kind of similar things. And this is what happens when we take the word of God and we hear the letter of the law, but without the underlying spirit behind it. So when, I, when you hear these things, listen, ask him, what is the life behind what I'm saying? What is the spirit that we need to capture? So in the Old Testament, the people of God were made up of 12 tribes, um, and they had different names, um, and one of those tribes, God said, I, I, want you to, I want you to be set apart as a people for my own possession, and they were called the Levites, and the Levites were the, priest of, the priests of God. So out of the 12 tribes, one tribe were given the special responsibility um, of being priests to God who administered a hymn uh, and to the people. And so the Levites were set apart. They were a people chosen of God's own possession. And so in Exodus 32, if you do have your Bibles, um, it would be cool if you want to turn to Exodus 32. In Exodus 32, God go, uh, sorry, Moses goes up on top of Mount Sinai to receive the Ten Commandments on behalf of the people. And he comes back down to this outrageous scene. The people of God who he had just chosen to be set apart to him were worshipping this golden calf. All 12 tribes were guilty. All 12 tribes were responsible. And so when Moses came down the hill, it was like being caught in the pantry with your hand right in the cookie jar. You know, There was no escape. They were absolutely found out for what was in them. And so God responds. says this, now when Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron, the head of the Levites, the head of the set-apart people, had let them get out of control to be a, a derision among their camp and said, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered to him, and he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from the gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, dedicate yourselves today to the Lord for every man has been against his son and against his brother in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. 
And so Moses comes back down the mountain, finds the people of God in such absolute idolatry. But even in this, you just see the most outrageous and incredible call and promise of God. He says, whoever's for the Lord, come to me. There's the gospel right there. A people caught in adultery. A people caught in idolatry. And he says, come. Come out of where you are and come to me. What a promise. But out of the 12 tribes, only one tribe responded. He says, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. All 12 were caught up in this lifestyle of loving, serving other things, other people, other gods. But only one responded to the call that said, come out, come out from where you're living and come and serve me. And their response, he said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from the gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. That is ruthless. Does, is it just me or does that strike the rest of you of a God who commands the people to go and kill their own friends and their own brothers? And we'll unpack that later on of, of what that actually looks like. But God is requiring a form of absolute obedience. He requires his people to be so set apart for him above and beyond their own families and their own flesh and blood. And that's what we're invited to as his people. And so the tribe of Levi were the faithful ones. Now, at this stage, it probably sounds a little bit doom and gloom. But can I assure you that it is absolutely and totally far from the case being set apart, allowing the sword to come and to separate and to divide is for one purpose only, and that's to be joined to the Lord. And in fact, the name Levi actually means to be joined or to be joined to the Lord. What an awesome and precious promise to be joined to the Lord as his own precious possession. The room's very quiet, and it seems like things are a little bit heavy. But when you start to hear what this is about, the heaviness will lift, and the hope and the life will begin to come. So what does it mean to be joined to the Lord? What does that actually look like? And the best example that I can think of is getting married to Tess. I remember on, on my wedding day, I went over to mum and dad's house and it was, there was, I don't know if you guys remember, in the morning, it was an emotional time. 
because I realized that I was leaving and I was being joined to someone else. And it was emotional not because of grief, but because of joy. I was about to be joined to the woman of my dreams. <laughs> Seriously. More so, more so now than when we got married. We're more in love now, Atis. The joy of being joined to Tess absolutely outweighed the separation from my parents. And we're not separate. I'm not separate from my parents. I still go over every couple of weeks. <laughs> it's not a physical separation. It's a leaving and a cleaving. It's a separation from being under the authority and a coming and a joining and a new relationship that's full of life and hope. So the Levites, they had to leave. They had to be set apart. The sword had to come and divide. Now, if that process hadn't happened, it would be disastrous for our marriage. You don't even have to be a Christian to know that. We've been walking with some people not of this community, which is good, but who had just recently got married, but yet the girl is more devoted to her mum than she is to her husband. And all of her decisions are based around what the mum wants and not what the husband wants. That thing is messed up, man. You honestly don't have to be a Christian to know that that's messed up. And yet that's what happens if the sword of the Lord doesn't come. John the Baptist, he says, the axe must be laid to the root of the tree. There must be a division between us and our idols, our lovers. Now, idolatry is not worshipping a golden calf. Let's be real. Who has a golden calf in their room? <laughs> Come on. It's either that or God is still speaking to us today and he's asking us to get rid of those idols and come and serve the living and true God. An idol is anything that has an influence over our soul, our decisions, our actions, as a first place priority. It can be a job. It can be a family member, it can be a child, it can be anything. And Moses says to the Levites, he says, you've got to go and kill your friends, your brothers, your family members. And God is saying the same to us today. Not to separate in a physical way, but to separate in an internal way where our absolute devotion and love is for the Lord and not for those other things. And let me tell you, the only way that that process is going to happen is like with Tess and I, that there's a greater joy in knowing him and being joined to him than there is in these other things. Otherwise, you'll never let them go. Never, ever. 
And so there's a beautiful parable. I think it's probably my favorite parable. And a merchant is seeking costly pearls. He's on the hunt. And he discovers this one pearl of great price, of such infinite worth and value, that his innate response is to sell up everything. He gives it all up for the sake of this one pearl of great price, this one precious pearl. And it says, for the joy, he goes and sells everything he has for it. And so for the joy of being married, I was set apart from my parents. It's not a destructive thing. It's a healthy thing. And so for us, for the joy of being joined to Christ, of being united with him in a beautiful and eternal relationship, that joy will motivate this process. You won't be able to help it. It'll just happen. The way the parable reads is it's almost like he just he, dis, he discovers it and the, he goes and sells everything that he has. I remember in our midwife appointment, we just talked about um, the baby coming <laughs> this week. And the midwife said, the ladies get freaked out because all of a sudden their body's out of control. They're in labor and they're giving birth to this baby and there's nothing they can do to stop it. That's the kingdom right there. <laughs> I'm serious. When you have the life of Christ birthed within you, you won't be able to stop putting the sword of the Lord and allowing it to penetrate the deepest and the most precious parts of your heart so that you might be joined to the Lord. It's unstoppable. That is. Because the kingdom isn't a matter of eating and drinking. It's a matter of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's not about what you do. It's not about the food that goes into your mouth. It's not about the clothes that you wear. It's not about the things that you do. It's about righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. It's about an inner life that's birthed within you, that's unstoppable. The writer of Hebrews would call it indestructible. It governs everything else. It's like a mustard seed that a farmer throws on the ground and he comes back and it's a magnificent tree that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. It seems to have a life of its own. It's powerful. It's moving. And this is what the revelation of Christ will do to us. When he opens our eyes to who he is, you will let go of your idols he has become your love. You've been joined to him. And everything else becomes a distant thought, a distant memory of who you used to be and what you used to love. Isn't it awesome? That's the gospel. The power of God unto salvation. The power of God to set us free from what we used to love and to join us to him in the most intimate and awesome union. All right, Psalm 17. 
Psalm 17, verse 13. Listen as I read this, because what David is saying will, I think, cement and reconfirm in other language what it is that we've just been talking about. All right, verse 13 and a half. Deliver my soul from the wicked with your sword. From men of your hand, O Lord, from men of the world, whose portion is in this life, and whose belly you fill with your treasure. They are satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Does that not just take your breath away? Deliver my soul, David's saying, from the wicked with your sword. It's interesting to me that David isn't asking him to bring him to a new location. He's not asking him to save his body. He's not asking him to take him away from those wicked people. He's saying, deliver my soul. Deliver my will, my emotions, my love. Do a deep work within me that the sword would separate me from the influence, the attitudes, the thinking, the mindsets of the world and all those who live for the things of the world because I don't want a part of it. From men of the world, or from men with your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. Interesting. And so the Levites, when they finally made it to the promised land, and God was dividing up the land, he decided he'd divide it into 11 portions, but for the 12 tribes. Once again, it sounds a bit ruthless. Having children, having four children, and giving three of them an inheritance. But yet, it goes on to say, that they would receive no inheritance in the land, for the Lord their God was their inheritance. Wow. Men whose portion is not in this life. Men who love God, adjoin with him, and are living for the things of heaven and the things of eternity not the things of earth. So I wonder where our inheritance lies. Is that our hope? Is that what we go to bed meditating on at night? That we wake up in the morning, that motivates us, that stirs us, the things of heaven and eternity. And whose belly you fill with your treasure. Whose belly... And why has it become a treasure? You know, in Philippians, I think it's, I have it here, 3 verse 19, Paul, he talks about a people whose God has become their appetite, who set their minds on earthly things. 
I love the way that he uses the most basic and elementary things of life to teach us. Food and drink. If you don't eat food, you die. So what's he talking about? He's saying that their appetite, these particular people, has become their God. It doesn't necessarily have to be for food. It can be appetite for anything. They're hungry. What wells up within them is a lust, a desire for something earthly. They're trying to find satisfaction in a relationship, in a job, in other people's thoughts of them, anything apart from satisfaction in him. They're satisfied with children and leave their abundance to their babes. Once again, something that is so beautifully natural, leaving an inheritance to your children. I certainly hope that I leave a good inheritance to my children when I'm older. But yet there's something so strikingly beautiful about a people set apart whose lives aren't consumed by the success or failure of their children, who are free from other people and other people's success. Because really being bound to someone else's success is about really it's about being bound to your success and how you look and and the role that you've played in the relationship with them. And I know this has been something big for Tess and I as we've walked with a number of young men over the last few years. And I know for me, when I was living in the flat with, with Jaden, it was a, we had a, a really challenging time where a guy who was homeless came and lived with us. How long was it for? At least three months or four months. A long time for a homeless guy to be living in your living room. And in my naivety, I went and moved out of the flat got a house for me in the sky and was committed to him having a better life. And so with my small income, that was a big commitment to rent a three-bedroom house. And on the first night of being in this house, he bailed. And it was slightly humiliating that I would put myself out there. And yet the situation looked like an absolute disaster. But what God was doing on the inside was of absolute and awesome value. That my life source wasn't in his success or failure or in my ministry. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of my Father who sent me. That's my life source. To do his will, not the success or failure of someone else. Your children, I don't have any children, but these boys have been like my children. And it's awesome. I I just am so grateful to have walked through that and for him to have done a work in my heart where I was set free from the need to be successful and to be seen to be successful, but to gain my life source through doing the will of the Father. 
Now, Jesus didn't have a very successful ministry. Certainly, if you compare it to how ministers define success today. Let's think about it. His closest disciples, one betrayed him. The other said he'd go to the cross with him and at the moment of testing, denied him. The others are just nowhere to be seen. But the success is not defined by the outcome. It's defined by the faithfulness. And so that's what these priests represent. They're people who have been separated from their families, from their children, from success, from people's or from their reputation, and they've been joined to the Lord in faithfulness to Him. And only those people who have gone through that process will be able to be faithful when the rubber hits the road. Because if there's a root that's left, that will come up at every point in the turn. If God asks for faithfulness, but in your heart you're more faithful to your children, that will trumpet every time until we come to this place where he's all we want and all we need. Verse 15. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Saying, as for me, he says, look, honestly, everyone else is going to live differently. They're going to live for the world. They're going to be consumed by the things in the world. But as for me, I can't determine their decisions, but I can determine my faithfulness to the Lord. And I'm going to behold your face in righteousness. And I love that the antidote is beholding the face of the Lord. Like the example with Tess and I, the joy set before us is what produced this transforming work. I will be satisfied with your likeness when I awake. Such a contrast to the satisfaction that these other people found in possessions and feeding their bellies and providing an inheritance for their children. He says, I'm satisfied. That's the only thing that satisfies me. Your likeness when I awake. Awesome. That even in sleeping, it's like he goes to bed, he goes to sleep and he wakes up and it's God's likeness. Sounds like the parable of the mustard seed. And the life and the power of the kingdom of God at work inside of him. Cool. So the last example that I want to look at is in Matthew 24. So if you have your, your Bibles, turn to Matthew 24. This is the famous end times chapter. But in actual fact, it's not really about the end times. It's about being set apart as a people of God's own position. And once again, when you hear this, hear the underlying themes that we've talked about. I feel like I'm saying the same thing, repeating the same story in three different parables. So as I'm speaking, listen, think for yourself. These are some of the same things that are coming out. 
So Matthew chapter 24, verse 38. This is a, we, we looked in our life group uh, at Hebrews and the life of Noah. And so this is something that came out. Verse 38. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. Interesting verse. There's so much talk about the end times at the moment. I don't know if you guys have picked that up. Even in the secular newspaper, you read it. And I feel like sometimes as a church, we're in danger of taking our cues more from what the world is saying than what from the word of God says. He says, For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking. Marrying and giving in marriage. Once again, interesting. The most basic and fundamental aspects of life. Eating and drinking. So what's he saying? Is he trying to say don't eat? Don't drink? Don't get married? Or is there something more that underpins and underlines what it is that he's talking about? I think once again... He's talking about the things of earth, the things of this life, versus the things of eternity. He says that in those days, people will be more concerned about earthly things than about heavenly ones. They'll be so caught up in their lives as opposed to being set apart to God. He says, then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. One will be left. So this classic in times chapter, he's saying this. Not that there's one person who's involved in the things of daily life and one who's doomsday prepping getting everything together, hiding away in a hut? No. He says, two men will be working in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. I think it's in the Mark chapter that it says, two people will be sleeping. One will be taken, one will be left. Interesting. It goes so far beyond our actions. That's not what he's looking for. He's looking for a preparation of another kind. And the best way that I can think about it is once again with our marriage. To prepare for the end times, like to prepare for a date or date setting or something that's going to happen, even the tribulation in the future, is like to prepare for a wedding but not to prepare for a marriage. It's to prepare for the birth of our child, 
but not actually to prepare for living with the child. Now hear what I'm saying. I think we live in very serious times. The return of Jesus might even be in our lifetime. I don't know. I'm not denying the fact. Being at university has opened my eyes to the house of cards that our world economic system is and could collapse at any moment, causing absolute chaos throughout the entire world. It's hinging, it's on a knife edge. But the people of God, the set-apart people, the people who are prepared as God's own possession aren't preparing for a date, they're preparing for him. They're about daily life. They're faithful in the small things, in the daily grind. You know what I'm learning over the last two months is how to serve by washing the dishes. That's my preparation at this time. We've got people living with us who are adults that should know how to do their dishes but don't. And so he's been speaking to me about serving. And through doing the dishes, I'm preparing unto the Lord to be his possession because that's what he's looking for. That my service would be a love for him. Verse 42. Therefore be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the household had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must also be ready For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. And there explicitly he's saying, he's going to come at an hour that you do not expect. What's he saying? Faithfulness at all times, as a lifestyle, in every way, through the daily grind, serving your family, serving your community, being about the Father's business. And that is a place of such absolute confidence that you know you're about what he's asked you to be about. You're living in that place of love for him where he's revealing himself more and more to you. I've been reading an interesting book at the moment. It's about the aftermath of the Second World War. And in this particular book, it talks about the Jewish concentration camps. And at the end of the year, there was a mass flow of those Jews who had just, by the skin of their teeth, escaped from these concentration camps and were brought into refugee camps, I think that were run by the British or, or something like that. Um, and the lady who was writing this book was, a, I think, a manager at one of these refugee camps. And so she's working with these people who have just been speared from torture and death. And in this book, she's marvelling 
at the attitude of these people. She said they're so arrogant, they're so ungrateful, they're so unthankful that their lives have just been spared and that now they've got food and clothes and everything that they need. And it just it got me thinking, what's it going to take for the people of God to come and to be the set-apart people, the people of his own position? Will tribulation do it? They've just gone through the Holocaust. And it talks about tribulation in the end times, but ultimately that is not what's going to bring them to this place of being set apart. They need an apocalypse in the truest sense of the word. It says that they will look upon him whom they have pierced and will mourn for him. That their eyes will finally be opened to the goodness. It says that in the last days, people will come trembling to the Lord because of his goodness. And it's the revelation of Christ and that only that will take them from being the the hard-hearted, stiff-necked people into the people of God, the set-apart people. And it's the same for us. I only use that as an example to say they are us. And that's what it's going to take for us. A revelation, capturing a glimpse of God. And once again, like the example I used with, with Tess and I in our marriage, a glimpse of the joy of what being with him the value of that versus the things of this life and of this world. And so I hope that you hear, not in times, I hope that you hear being set apart. Because when we are set apart people, we don't fear even the tribulation. God will plonk us down by a river and get ravens to provide for us if we need if we need that. But let's be a people who are set apart to him, who are preparing for him, who are joined to him. A people, an apocalyptic people, a people who daily and through the everyday things of life are having the scales stripped and removed from our eyes as we come into a greater knowledge of him and are being transformed into that likeness with ever-increasing glory, it says. A people who behold the face of the Lord and whose beauty is so staggering to us that it produces a changed life. You know, the prophets talked over and over again about the day of the Lord Thousands of years before Jesus would come a first time, let alone a second time, and spoke of it with such intensity. It was right at hand. It was at the door. And yet it was going to be thousands of years before he'd even come. Why? Because they were a people who were set apart and joined to him the intensity of the things of heaven outweighed and overcame the things of this natural life, that they were people who numbered their days and lived lives of faithfulness. 
it said that the spirit within them provoked them to live in this way and to see the things that we would inherit. And so my prayer for us is that we would be a set-apart people, a people who allow the sword of the word of God to penetrate our brokenness and our insecurities, that we would be joined to the Lord and would be a people of his own possession. Thanks, guys.